Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This weekend is one of the most exciting weekends at the movies in a while because not one but two giant movies are hitting the big screen. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. This week also saw the return of one of my favorite shows and the farewell of another. Plus, with the actors now on strike alongside the writers, many are wondering what happens next. All right, so let's get to those two big movies opening this week. First, we have Barbie. This summer, it's time for Barbie. Me? To discover the real world. No, 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 no. Watch me. I started to get all these weird old feelings. It's anxiety. I have it too. You're going to start getting sad and mushy and complicated. She's not dead. She's just having an existential crisis. What about Ken? I'm just a dude. Ken isn't something we're worried about. What? Barbie, July 21st, rated PG-13. And we also have Oppenheimer. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Didn't need a charge. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But I know the Nazis can't. Three, two, one. Oppenheimer in theaters this summer. Barbie is directed by Greta Gerwig and stars Margot Robbie as stereotypical Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken, and it has a giant supporting cast like Will Ferrell and Kate McKinnon, just to name a couple. Oppenheimer is directed by Christopher Nolan and stars Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, and also has a giant supporting cast, including Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr., again, just to name a couple. Barbie is, of course, inspired by the decades-old dolls and toys and partially inspired by a 1994 book called Reviving Ophelia, while Oppenheimer is inspired by the true story, of course, in the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Both movies are killing it on Rotten Tomatoes. At last check, Barbie was at 89%, Oppenheimer at 93%. So the stage is set for one of the most bizarre box office battles in recent memory. And Global's Mike Armstrong looks at how the blockbusters have inspired <sighs> Barbenheimer. Barf. It's a mashup that's more than a meme. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. The battle at the box office this weekend will be waged between a blonde bombshell Hi, Ken. and a brown-haired bomb maker. I have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? Somehow, the two movies have been linked by harnessing the power of juxtaposition. There's something strange about putting them together, but people are. What's going on? I'm actually not sure. This is one of the mashup trailers, taking Barbie, adding Oppenheimer, and getting Barbenheimer. Barbie Oppenheimer Day is fast approaching. How will you be celebrating? Basically, ever since it was announced, the two movies would be released on the same day. And going head to head, people have been having fun with it. The Barbie movie is a light comedy. <laughs> This is a matter of life and death. Oppenheimer about as heavy a drama as possible. I don't have anything big planned, just becoming death, the destroyer of worlds. You should stop by. So cool. Together, they have trailers, movie posters, and t-shirts. People are showing up with them on the red carpet. <laughs> okay, I have to sign it on this side. I hope you meet Killian Murphy and he can sign the other side. 
Now it is something the casts of the two movies, seemingly half of Hollywood by the way, are enjoying. Marketing experts say both will likely get a boost at the box office from all the publicity. World. Some theaters are promoting a double bill. But remember this day. Both movies back to back, which raises an interesting question. Barbie or Oppenheimer? Which one do you think I'll prefer? No, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? I think the world maybe wants to see Barbie a little bit more right now. I think actually start your day with Barbie, then go straight into Oppenheimer, and then Barbie Chaser. Why are these men looking at me? There is one theater chain offering a discount for people who see both, but warning against going back to back. It's not just that they'd run a combined five hours. You are the men who gave them the power to destroy themselves. The company says the sudden change in subject matter might lead to a sort of cinematic whiplash. Mike Armstrong, Global News. Now, Barbie is expected to be the champ this weekend, with predictions hovering around $100 million, while Oppenheimer is expected to make roughly $50 million. And that's not to suggest failure on Oppenheimer's part. Barbie is under two hours long. Oppenheimer is three hours long, so fewer screenings. And that runtime is likely to keep some people away. And it's rated R in the U.S., so that limits the attendance. In Canada, it's 14A. Barbie is also being marketed in a way where they're saying, if you love Barbie, come see our movie. If you hate Barbie, come see our movie. The movie was done in this tongue-in-cheek way that both celebrates and playfully sends up Barbie, whereas Oppenheimer is a dialogue-heavy drama about some pretty heavy stuff. But Jeff... You, like, love both of these directors. You must have tickets for both of these, no? I like Greta Gerwig a great deal more than I like Christopher Nolan. Oh, yeah? I, I like the Batman movies and The Prestige, and you can have the, and Dunkirk, and I don't like any of the other movies. That okay. Oh, Memento's right. not too bad, but I haven't seen it in a while. Anyways, no, I'm excited for both. I'm a little... Uh, I'm already sick of all the press for both of these and this the constant Barbenheimer stuff or whatever. It's yeah. just like... Because we mentioned this... Six months ago, when they announced the release dates, it was like, ooh, this will be fun later in the summer. What a weird uh, pairing of movies. I am uh, going to go see Oppenheimer tomorrow, and it's going to be, I won't have seen Barbie by this time next week. So just, I got, I got my parents, frankly, I got my parents coming in from out of town, and it's going to screw up my movie going schedule. So <laughs> sorry, Barbie. Um, but yeah, I'm, I am excited for both. Uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know which one I'm more excited about. Um, I think I'm more excited about Barbie just because it is, going to be lighter and more fun and that sort of thing. And Christopher Nolan is so serious about absolutely everything. At least he's, you know, doing something serious for subject matter this time. So hopefully that matchup there will work like it did in Dunkirk and, you know, more so than it did in Tenet, which was his last movie, which we both uh, despised, even though we... Uh, did you see that one twice? No. I watched that thing twice just because, like, nah, it's got to be a way into this movie somehow for us. And I was like, no, it's there's not. This That movie was terrible and that's all there is to do it. Tenet is the the only movie where I took a nap on purpose while I was sitting in the movie theater. <laughs> I got up and I went for a walk. I came back and I had a nap because within 30 minutes of the movie starting, I had no idea what was going on because the yep. sound mix was so bad. And I know that many of his movies are like that, but Tenet was awful. I just, I had no clue what was going on. And it was, it's such a complicated looking story that once you miss a few details, yeah, you're out. And I never went back to rewatch it with subtitles, just out of spite. I just hate like I, I hate everything that it stands for. I like that crutch. Yeah. And and it's also the kind of movie that like 
there's nothing like there's some cool visual stuff in it, all the stuff going backwards or whatever, but it's not so great visually that it can withstand not knowing what the story's about, like some like I don't know, like an Armageddon or something could, right? Yeah. I and I've heard mixed accounts of well as well about the sound mixing in Oppenheimer. I watched one review where the guy said point blank there were none of those issues in this. Hmm. And then another uh reviewer saying some of the dialogue was a little muddled for me. So I don't know if it's just the, the theater that you're in. Yeah. Uh, it could all, yeah, I think this could said, be their ears, literally. Well, and the guy who said it was muddled, I believe he said he saw it on an IMAX screen and he said it was exceedingly loud. Those IMAX screens are super loud, so it's possible that the dialogue was just drowned out by the sheer noise. Yeah. I don't know. Also interesting about Oppenheimer. No CGI. Christopher Nolan says there is not a single frame of CG, including the explosion of the atomic bomb. Interesting. So I'm curious to see how they pull that off. Maybe maybe they just did a little tiny, uh, like on a sand table kind of thing or whatever, just uh, lighting firecrackers and just, which if you blow it up the right way, yeah. looks like an actual A-bomb. I don't know. Well, <laughs> he, he did say the guy that he tasked with, with some of this stuff was doing all months and months of experiment uh, to try to capture like the effect. Yeah. yeah, and he said apparently some of them were on a microscopic level and some of them were significantly larger. Uh, obviously, they didn't blow a nuke. I thought I heard something about like 100 tons of dynamite or something like that. I, I don't know if, I don't, I can't even remember where I heard that or whatever, but I was like, oh, that's, that's, I like that. I like if it's good old fashioned filmmaking versus like, let's just blow something up. Yeah. That's fun because you just never get to see that anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, for, for a while there, you, it, would, it would almost come out like this, not a brag, but it was a symbol of just how big the movie is, is that, oh, we've got like 6,000 CG shots in our movie. Yeah. And now to hear somebody say, there is no CG. It's amazing. Is cool. So hopefully this is, you know, we we, saw, we had Top Gun Maverick last year. Hopefully that brings a return of sort of more old-fashioned, just straight-up thrillers. And then uh, no CG. That's great. I should also point out uh, both Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling uh, are being praised. Gosling is apparently a scene stealer, just hilarious. And Kill- And they're talking Oscars already for Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. doesn't have a ton of screen time, but apparently he really... Uh, brings it home in this one so like like in a way where he hasn't brought as much passion to a role since before iron man he was great as tony stark but but he was you know when you're in an mcu movie you're just serving so many masters that those guys don't really get to come off the leash and cook like they want to yeah so in a moment given the fact that these two movies are coming out this weekend we just wanted to take a look back because i was actually surprised at how many times this has happened and uh, I don't know if I even have the complete list here, but we want to share a couple of examples of times this has happened before. And uh, maybe, and, and I kind of wish that some of these, I had just done the double feature. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. We're talking about the fact that we've got these two big movies opening this weekend, and they're kind of feeding off of each other to, to build momentum. We're talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. And by the way, the phenomenon is taking hold in Canada. Nearly 345,000 advanced tickets have been purchased for two of the for the two movies. Um, we've, Cineplex says more than 60,000 advance tickets were purchased by moviegoers seeing both films, and 65% of those ticket buyers will watch Oppenheimer and Barbie on the same day. So, big movies that opened the same weekend. I knew about some of these. 
Like one that jumped to mind immediately was I remembered that Superman Returns oh, and yeah. the Devil Wears Prada came out that same week, June 28th and June 30th, 2006. So you had a superhero movie and then you had this totally counter-programmed film and they both did very well. But uh, going back, the, the, the first one I could find was The Empire Strikes Back and The Shining, May 21st and 23rd, 1980. If you can believe that, that's pretty good. That's a that's a fun whole day at the theater if you go to see both of those things. Yeah. Then we've got uh, Poltergeist and Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, June fourth, nineteen eighty two. It turns out that month was a big one because Blade Runner and The Thing came out on June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. June eighth, nineteen eighty four. Get this pairing: Ghostbusters and Gremlins. That would never happen in this day and age. They would just never allow that. It's like, nope, these movies are going to have far too much of the same crossover audience that there's just no way they're both coming out the same weekend. Yeah, so that's pretty cool that they came out. March 13, 1987, Raising Arizona and Evil Dead 2. June 26, 1987. Once again, I think this, uh, much like Barbie and Oppenheimer, you couldn't get further apart. <laughs> We've got Full Metal Jacket and Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I I forgot about I I always think Die Hard came out in the early 90s for some reason but July 15 1988 Die Hard and a Fish Called Wanda That's Still, fun. That's a fun day. Batman and Honey I Shrunk the Kids June 23rd 1989 uh, July 12 1991 Point Break and Boys in the Hood. Okay. And then then we're moving to October 14 1994 Pulp Fiction and Hoop Dreams. I actually forgot about Hoop Dreams. I don't that, know. I think I've seen it once. I don't think I've ever seen it. That's documentary, right? Yeah. yeah. That was but a that big was, one. Yeah. I remember both Siskel and Ebert were huge on both of those movies. They were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They did a whole episode. They usually would do five or six or seven movie reviews in one episode. Pulp Fiction got its own episode. One movie. It, it, oh, They wow. did a regular little segment on it, and then like two months later, they're like, no, we're going back, and we're just doing a half hour on Pulp Fiction. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Toy Story and Casino. Now, there's your whiplash, because that's about, you can bring the littlest kids to Toy Story, and you should... Like Casino, I feel like you should have to be like 35 to watch that movie or something <laughs> like that. That's a, a hard R if ever there was one. And no, but this was a good year for De Niro, apparently. November 22nd, 1995 was Toy Story Casino. And then December 15th, 1995 was Jumanji and Heat. That is a good year for De Niro. Heat's one of his best. March 31st, 1999. My birthday. Oh, little yeah? Je- little Jeffrey Braun turns 23. Ten Things I Hate About You is one of the movies. The other movie, The Matrix. Nice. And then November 7, 2003. I had no idea that these two movies were correlated. Elf and Love Actually, two of the best Christmas movies to be made in the last 30 years. Probably the last, like, when we, you know, when we do Christmas movies and here's the list of all-timer Christmas movies, is there anything newer than Elf or Love Actually? In terms of classics, I don't know. I don't think so either. And I, uh, it wasn't on November 7th. It was probably plus or minus a few weeks. I think Bad Santa came out that year as well. Oh, yeah. Which is always on my list, but <laughs> it's not an all-time classic, I guess. Also, 2003, those movies turned 20 this year? Yep. That's wild. Break. July 18, 2008, The Dark Knight and Mamma Mia. That was another big one. And, uh, and again, a Christopher Nolan yeah. thing. And then finally, December 25th, 2012, Django Unchained and Les Miserables. There you go. Which actually, that kind of seems like 
so there, there could be potential crossover there too, right? In terms of like, yeah, the, 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 those seem like movies that would appeal to a similar audience. That's a, that's a Christmas day. So that's a, oh, is mom coming with us? I guess we're going to Les Mis. <laughs> Fair. Not the Tarantino movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's happened a lot in the past, but uh, the idea of doing a double feature sounds kind of cool. If you had to do the double feature, Barbie and Oppenheimer, which order would you do it in? Um, I think I'd do Oppenheimer first and then Barbie because I think once you get late into the five or six hours that you've been there, you want it to be fun and colorful and bright and it would just keep you awake more. You know what I mean? Oppenheimer, I can see it's going to have stretches where you might want to take that tenant nap. Yeah, that's fair. I think I'd do it the other way around because really? I feel like Oppenheimer is a movie that will stay with you and perhaps haunt you and oh. you'll be trying to have fun watching Barbie and you still got Oppenheimer <laughs> bouncing around in your brains. I don't know. I don't think there's a right, there's clearly no right or wrong answer. Just go see the movies and uh, enjoy them both or at least appreciate them both. Enjoy might be the wrong word for Oppenheimer. Up next, we got to tell you about one of the shows that came back to make Jeff, Jeff happy and another show that decided to go away. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And one of my favorite shows that I thought had ended came back this week. Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens is back in Justified City Primeval. Now just listen to me. I'm Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylene Givens, and I'm offering salvation. Talk to me. Come on, face to face. I am not opening this door. Then, as they say in the Bible, you're screwed. Remember, breathe. Marshal, welcome to Detroit. Detective, meet Raylene Givens. What's up, Slim? This ought to be good. Got a task force with Detroit PD. You've been special requested. I promised my kid we got a whole road trip planned back to Miami. Wasn't a question. This guy left a trailer from Oklahoma to Detroit. He ain't got cash. We got ourselves a problem. Any information on this dude could help us. Clement Menzel is my client. He's a killer, and he enjoys it. You do your job, and I'll do mine. Timothy Olyphant reprises the role he held over six seasons from 2010 to 2015 on FX's Justified. But the location this time around is new. The show originally was set in Harlan, Kentucky, a small mining town surrounded by a sea of hillbilly criminals who Marshall Givens had to contend with. Now it's a few years later, and by chance, Givens gets swept up in an investigation in Detroit. I think it's a good move, like how Dexter was awesome in its new location when it was revived a couple of years back. Trying to recapture the exact thing that was already put to bed is incredibly difficult, so these shows take the main ingredient and use it in a new recipe, and then it can work. Even then, there's no guarantees, though, so I was a little nervous when I fired up the first episode of City Primeval this week. Luckily, I was pleased with what I saw. Oliphant was born to play this character, and even though he's, you know, got gray hair now, he's still the same old Raylan, filled with his trademark, speak softly and carry a big stick charm and charisma. The season, uh, apparently based on an Elmore Leonard book, the character was created by Leonard in a short story called Fire in the Hole, which the pilot episode of the original series was based on. Then showrunner 
Graham Yost and company took it from there. So this story is based on Elmer Leonard's material, which is always good. His uh, pulpy crime novels have been the basis for some great movies like Tarantino's Jackie Brown, Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight, and Barry Sonnenfeld's Get Shorty. A lot happens in the first episode of The New Justified. I don't want to lay it all out because there are a few twists and turns before that first hour even wraps up. Um, yada, 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 Raylan Givens passing through, ends up catching some bad guys and ends up testifying about it in court in Detroit. The judge, played by the great character actor Keith David. If you don't recognize the name, you will absolutely recognize the face and maybe even the voice. He was in There's Something About Mary. What's that bubble there? What do you think? It's a... Well, how the hell did you get the beans above the frag? I mean, you also, the voice of Goliath in the cartoon Gargoyles. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He's, he's in a lot of voice work, I think, if you look up yeah. his IMDb. Uh, he's always great whenever he pops up in anything. That um, Something about Mary's scene is uh, pretty amazing. At any rate, here he plays a judge, uh, and he's an incredibly colorful character, the likes of which are common in Elmore Leonard stories. Someone's been trying to kill this judge, though, and so he enlists Raylan Givens' help in the matter, and we're off and running. Now, I mentioned colorful characters. There are quite a few here, including Boyd Holbrook as a vicious low-rent thug. He's having a pretty fun summer. He's also in the new Indiana Jones, of course. We also meet another cop, played by Victor Will. Williams from the King of Queens, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall from Die Hard 2 and many other things is here as well, a bunch of others, and most notably is his teenage daughter, Willa, who's played by Timothy Oliphant's real-life teenage daughter. That's pretty wild, and she's a good actress. Uh, it might be some, you know, pretty blatant nepotism, but the kid holds up her end of the deal, so I don't have a problem with it. The math doesn't totally add up uh, according to when the character was born in the original series, and how she's 15, year olds now, or 15 years old now. Uh, even Oliphant agrees that, no, we kind of had a put her a few years older than she would have been, but all of TV is filled with that sort of thing and it can rarely be bothered to be upset by it anywhere anymore, but uh, I don't know, just don't think we didn't notice Justified. Despite all the new characters we're meeting, there is, I will say, a noticeable Walton Goggin-sized hole in this show that they won't be able to fill unless they come up with a reason to bring him in, which I would be quite surprised by because it's far away from anywhere he ever was in the other show, and then just the way that show ended, he just probably shouldn't be around anywhere at that point. Point. But Goggins' uh, boy Crowder was, you know, the Yang to Raylan's Yin, so he is definitely missed so far in the early going here. It does make you wonder if anyone from Raylan's past adventures will show up. Only time will tell. New episodes are airing every Tuesday on FX, and if you like Justified, I think you're going to like City Primeval as well. And as far as the 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 age mix up with. Uh, Children, children characters, or yeah. whatever they do that all the time in soap operas. Like there will be a oh, kid my. on the show, yeah, yeah. and the kid will do, go away for a little while, go and then they'll camp. come back and yeah, you know, go to camp, <laughs> and then they come back an adult. Like yeah. they've aged fifteen to twenty years. Like I remember when Nick Newman, uh, when they when he showed up as an adult, I'm I, on the Young and the Restless. Yeah. I'm positive they aged him by like ten to fifteen years, yeah, yeah, yeah. and no one and just everything carried on as normal. They didn't do a time jump. He just. Okay, we got we got to introduce a character and not just a kid in this side. So. Soap opera timelines are are hilarious because yeah. you have like the Christmas party and the aftermath, and it's just people having conversations, but they're still wearing what they wore at the Christmas party earlier that evening, which was like two months ago, <laughs> as far as episodes go. And then next thing you know, it's like Valentine's Day, and it's like where are you how. <laughs> <laughs> 
you guys haven't done anything since Christmas. What's going on? Anyways, it's weird. Okay, so yeah, so that's uh, Justified. The other show we want to talk about this week that we both watched, and uh, as quick as it arrived, season four, the final season of Prime Video's Jack Ryan is now gone. Two days ago, a strike team assassinated President Udo. And yet, you cannot prove that we weren't involved. Doesn't that concern you? No, sir. It terrifies me. You need to manage this, Jack. Yes, sir. What are you going to tell him? This corruption goes way higher than the CIA. Hey, buddy. Say welcome. I figured we could use the help. Wish me luck. Good luck. As we mentioned a couple of weeks back, the spy thriller series Jack Ryan, starring John Krasinski as uh, Tom Clancy's intrepid CIA analyst, already put out its third season earlier this year, and now its fourth and final just a few months later. And that's half the series in a six-month span, which is kind of wild. I would imagine the general consensus is that while the final season did have its moments, the third season uh, is the best of the series, calling that the Russian season, I guess, because they were the belligerents there. First season was in the Middle East, the second in South America, the third in Russia, and then this fourth season in Myanmar for the most part. Great location, hasn't been done to death, even if a lot of the plot beats have been familiar. That was, you know, maybe the biggest drawback. The season felt a lot like kind of been there, done that, or maybe haven't been there, but definitely done that. The season involved a human trafficking ring, which I will say right up front is rarely my favorite. Uh, You know, in these scenarios, you usually get drug or gun smugglers and as awful as you know those things are you tend not to see the victims that are involved so it can be a little bit more fun to watch uh with human trafficking you invariably get a truck full of young women in bad shape and it's just a bummer you don't get you know kind of the arm's length distance from the victims that you do with some of the other criminal enterprises which makes a lot of the crime stories a little bit more fun to watch you could argue it raises the stakes which it does but i think the bummer vibes do more damage than raising the stakes do good uh at any rate our hero, Jack Ryan, on the case once again with an assist from a black ops assassin type played by Michael Pena and a mole on the inside of the criminal enterprise who's looking to get out. He's played by an actor named uh, Louis Ozawa I was unfamiliar with. He's probably the highlight of the season. I thought he did a great job. I actually cared what happened to him and his family. Michael Pena has for many years been a great addition to whatever movie or show he shows up in, uh, but I will say this performance I didn't really get. I'm not sure if it was his acting choices or the way the role was conceived, but he seemed out of place a lot somehow. It might have just been the extremely uh, seemingly casual way the guy went about business, but it seemed like he was on another show a lot of the time. And it felt weirder yet being Pina, who always clicks. I mean, I don't know. It just didn't really work for me. But I guess we'll always have him in the Ant-Man movies where he's stealing the show every time he shows up in those. I really liked him there. The series regulars, all great as usual. Mike Kelly is Mike November, probably my favorite. And he got a lot of good lines this season. And then after all the twists and turns, and as Krasinski and Wendell Pierce and the others piece it all together, they saved a big reveal for the final minutes. You may have seen it coming a mile away, but it was still satisfying, I thought. So a good season, if not a great one. And I guess I don't mind that the series is ending. But the finale really just felt like a season finale. There's nothing stopping them from coming back as far as the story goes. And I think it was kind of nice to just have an ending that wrapped up the season. And not everything has to take a big, a bunch of big swings at the very end just to shock people or that type of thing. So I don't know. I thought it was enough to come up with an interesting spy thriller plot and execute it competently, which is what they did. What do you think of the last season of Jack Ryan? Good, not great. Yeah. 
pretty much agree with uh, just about everything you said there. It, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the entire series. I thought Krasinski was excellent in the role. I love Wendell Pierce. Anytime he pops up on screen, I thought the, the stories were all timely and uh, I, I, it, it had that good sort of more of this is more like a like an international intrigue spy deal as opposed to like an action slam bam thriller. So I, I, I liked it and I love the opening credits. The the music is just that it's tense. But um yeah, all in all, it's it's good. Not great. Jack Ryan. There you go. Up next we gotta talk about the actors strike. What is next? You are listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes and we gotta talk about Hollywood strikes because the actors and writers strikes. Well, first of all, they're creating a lot of questions for TV and movie fans. The long-awaited movies Barbie and Oppenheimer will still come out this week as scheduled, and movies will continue to be released for some time. The unions affecting actors and writers say going to see a movie is not considered crossing a picket line, nor are unions calling anyone to boycott movies or cancel streaming services. Stars are not attending glitzy premieres, but some recorded interviews to promote their projects before the strikes. It's unclear when fans will see new episodes of TV and streaming series, though. Not all unionized actors and writers are affected by the strikes. Some projects have gotten waivers or are not part of the contracts in dispute. Broadway and other live productions that feature famous actors are still being staged. Actors and writers can still post to social media and do podcasts as long as they're not promoting projects in the pipeline. They're also allowed to do commercials, variety shows, game shows, and talk shows. San Diego Comic-Con is a go for this weekend, but it has canceled some of its movie and TV panels. I'm Archie Zaraleta. That's gotta hurt for Comic-Con. And the strikes are causing some chaos for network television schedules as well. NBC is playing musical chairs because of the writers and actors' strikes. Law & Order and Law & Order SVU won't premiere this fall, being pushed back to next year. Along with the three Chicago shows, Night Court and the new John Cryer comedy Extended Family. The gaps will be filled by extra hours of The Voice and a few shows NBC was able to finish, including the second half of the final season of Magnum P.I. CBS made similar moves earlier this week, announcing it'll import Yellowstone over from Paramount Network. And ABC and Fox are going mostly reality-based. Jason Athenson, ABC News. Hollywood. And this week we spoke with Kyle Irving. He's co-owner and executive producer of Eagle Vision and Talon Production Services here in Winnipeg. Uh, at the end of the day, this is coming down to the most important issue, the hill that they are dying on, is that the streamers, the Netflix, the Disney Plus, the Amazon Primes of the world, this is a relatively speaking new business model. And the way that those models generate revenue is unusual compared to the historical ad-driven, box office-driven revenue sources, which for decades and decades were, it was easy to generate the revenue derived from content. Because of the new model with streamers, they have, you know, for a long time said, well, we need time to figure out the model. It's hard for us to quantify the value of the content. That excuse for that explanation is no longer satisfying the writer's it's no longer satisfying the actors. They know that these streamers are making money. They're, no, they're making it off of their content, and they believe that it can be quantified. So they want fair residual returns for the content that the streamers are making a lot of money off of. And they're no longer going to put up with any excuse from the streamers not to properly report those revenues 
and have them being shared with the people who it could be argued really elevate that content and make it as popular as it is. Now, the scary thing on the writer's side of this is that it sounds like the studios were basically just prepared to wait them out because eventually yeah. the writers would they start defaulting on their mortgages and whatnot because not they're not all rich or whatever. And but with the actors getting involved, I wonder if this is going to be a, a quicker thing than waiting it out until the fall or whatever. I would think so. I, the actors, some I read somewhere that the actors uh, union in the U.S. is one of the bigger unions in the U.S., not just in entertainment, but in all fields. It's a really huge union that affects so many people. And uh, yeah, because a lot of times I think the actors that are the most visible are the ones that are the most famous and therefore like... No one's worried about Tom Cruise losing money because he's on strike or that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that actors union covers like 99% of actors aren't Tom Cruise or anywhere close to all the recognizable names and faces we know. It's all the background actors and all the guys that get two lines in a law and order that desperately need to book like three episodes of TV a year just to stay afloat kind of a thing or whatever. So uh, those are the ones you kind of feel for as opposed, but even though the famous actors are the ones you see on the picket lines and that sort of thing. So uh, that's important to keep in mind. But yeah, and then for us, the audience, how this all works out, obviously, like those voicers mentioned, the TV is going to dry up real fast, yeah. especially yeah, any network shows you expect it to return in fall are already being push back and that sort of thing. And then if this stays on for a few more months and next year's movies will come into that'll, that'll be a problem for a lot of those, because even if they're done shooting, they usually need the actors to come back to just overdub some lines and that type of thing at some point. And if you push all that stuff back six months and next summer slate, who knows what that looks like? Yeah. We just went through this in the pandemic and now we might be going through it again with these strikes. It's the first time since the sixties, since both unions were on strike and that this is just kind of, this is weird. So there's a stretch of sidewalk outside universal studios and it's become a, a, a point of, Contention because there was this row of tightly trimmed trees along the sidewalk, and the actors are saying they they trimmed them too much. They trimmed them on purpose to to remove the the source of shade. So they can't pick so it they're, outside. So they're there? getting they're they're out there, but they're getting roasted under the California sun. Whereas the trees were putting up shade, and they're they're saying no, no, we just trimmed it for safety. But yeah, so they're they're taking shots at each other now. So anyway, we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. And that's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.